get started, let's pull out your Bibles, get them primed up to Luke chapter 11. We're going to read, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Can we do that? Amen. I told you you're going to need some help this morning. Are we going to do that? Luke chapter 11, jump in your Bibles with me, and then we'll read, starting in verse 5. And it says this, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I, answer, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be open. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are so thankful once again to be in your house. Lord, I'm praying right now for your spirit to dwell in this place, Lord. Uh, we may have some people who has never, ever visited a church before, but Lord, I pray they feel welcome in this place. Lord, I pray that you would be with me, Lord, hide me behind a cross, fill my heart and my mind with the words only you would have me to say. Lord, I pray for conviction to fill this place. And, Lord, that we would be, uh, our spirits would be renewed by your word. And, Lord, we just love you so very much. And I pray these things in your precious name. Amen. 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 So it is gl- I'm glad to be back with you. I was in Brazil for about 10 days. Um, that's, that's different, right? Like, that's a whole different place. Uh, and, and, and things were, were exciting over there. We had opportunities to, to uh, share almost 10,000 gospel tracts during that 10-day period. Uh, So that was, yes, that was amazing. We had a wonderful team. And you might think, 10,000 is a lot, especially when you have a team of 16. That's a lot, a lot of gospel tracks. But we went over there, and we were able to engage with uh, the people in Brazil, and we were over there helping a church that has kind of, I guess in a way, kind of started dwindling down and dying. Uh, There was a church that had been meeting in, in a building that was dilapidated, and, and the only place they could meet was in the parking garage underneath the building. And they'd been doing that for like eight years, meeting in a parking garage. So y'all had to be in a tent for a little while. Imagine being in a parking garage for eight years. Uh, and this, is what, this was the conditions of their building. They couldn't actually be in the building itself. And so God opened a way for them to sell that building and then to take that money and invest it into another property where they're trying to build and, and start a new church in a different location. And during this time, though, this whole transition time, the church had dwindled down to about 40 people. And, and so they were really struggling. And so one of our main missions was to go over there and help breathe life back into this church that had started to die. And uh, I, I tell you, God really moved in special ways. I don't want to steal everybody's thunder because everybody's got a specific kind of detail they want to share about this trip. But it was amazing. So I appreciate, church, you praying for us while we were there. And God did truly do an amazing work over in Brazil while we were there. Um, So today, today one of the things I want to preach about and talk about is is this idea of prayer. Like, as a Christian, we all understand that prayer is important. Would you agree with me? Okay, prayer is important. We're all on the same page there. Prayer is very important. But, But the reality is not many of us tap into the power of prayer like we should. Because, because number one, it's a discipline. It takes effort and it takes time, and sometimes it's not convenient to do that. And so sometimes prayer falls to the wayside. Right. 
But prayer is absolutely, without a doubt, one of the most important privileges that you and I have as believers. We have a privilege to go into the, to the presence of God our Father and make our requests known. But yet we very so rarely tap into that power like we should. And so in this story I just read in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is giving a parable. A parable is just a story for him to illustrate a, a point. Before you get to that parable, Jesus gives us kind of a model prayer. And then to kind of help illustrate it even further, then he gives us this parable. And so really quickly, what I'm going to do, my goal is, I have three points. My first two points will be kind of quickly. My last point is going to be a little bit longer. Just kind of give you the flow of how it's going to go. So, everybody ready? All right, buckle up, buttercup. All right, here we go. (laughs) The first thing we see is the time of his request. The time of his request was at midnight. Midnight. Now, this may not be a big deal to you, but the thing was, in that culture, in that culture, hospitality is huge. In America, hospitality is not a big deal. Like, somebody can come to your house, and you may or may not offer them something to drink. You may or may not offer them something to eat. But in that culture, it was a supreme necessity that you offer any traveling host, or traveling guest, I mean, you would offer them something to eat or drink. That was, the, that was how their culture operates. And so what happens is this man in this story has a midnight traveler coming to his house, and this man has nothing to give him. He has no food. And and to put ourselves in the context of that culture, there's no refrigerators. Like, he can't just go to the fridge and like, hey, you want some lasagna? Yeah, I got some lasagna. They couldn't do that. Like, Like, there was no leftovers. And so they would cook only what they needed for that day. And after they ate it, it was gone. And so this midnight traveler came to this man's house, and he has nothing to offer him. And there is a need. There is an emergency. So the setting is that there is this journey that's taking place late at night. And the reason they would travel at night is because how many of you want to walk in the middle of the day when it's 120 degrees? That's not very nice, right? You don't want to do that. So they would wait till the sun goes down to travel. It was more convenient. It was cooler. They could travel longer that way. And so this guest shows up in the middle of the night. Me and Jeff Robertson and Travis Sharp, we took a uh, trip to Texas. And we met this guy named Kika. And Kika is uh, is a missionary in Texas that works with refugee camps. It's a really neat operation. We went to this one apartment complex. And there's probably, I don't know, 30 or more different languages spoken in this one apartment complex. It was, an, it was like a little United Nations in the middle of Texas. It was amazing. And so we'd go walk, knock on one door, and it'd be a couple from the Congo. And they're like, would you like some fruit? And you're, you, can't, <laughs> you can't, I've never taken fruit from a stranger. But that, in that culture, you do that. You go to their door, they, they hospitality, they offer you some fruit, and you take that fruit. And you eat that fruit, and you pretend to enjoy it. You're like, <laughs> like you, you try to ignore like, what is on this fruit. Or what is inside, but you just eat it. And you go to another house, and they may be from Istanbul, and, and they, they invite you in, and they want to give you some chai latte tea. Some chai tea. That was huge over there. Everywhere you went, they gave you chai tea. Some of it was good, some of it was <laughs> terrible. Like, you drink it, and you're like, I never had to chew tea before. What is, what's in there? And it's just very, like, it's a weird, that's a weird texture. What is that? Uh, and so you would have to take and, and enjoy whatever they gave you, but that is the culture, that is the hospitality of who they are. And so this man, 
comes. There's no food for them. And so this friend, being a good friend, says, I need to go get my friend who just arrived here at midnight. I need to get him some food. So uh, I got a buddy that lives down the street. Let me go check on, let me go see if he has some extra food that I can give my friend. Did I mention it's midnight? It is midnight. And he goes over there and he's like, and his friend says, go away. Go away, we're asleep. I need some bread. All right, first of all, you come knock on my door at midnight saying, I need some bread. You're going to be in trouble. Uh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you, you may not see uh, the, the very nice side of Andrew coming out if, if you come to my house at midnight wanting some Wonder Bread to make a PB&J. I'm just going to send you down the road and say, go to Piggly Wiggly because we're closed. All right? uh, but here's the reality. This man went and knocked on his friend's house over and over and over. And I, just to give you some context, let me show you what a picture of a Palestinian home kind of looks like. Th- this is kind of a remodeled a model look of it. But if you look down underneath, that, that is where at night they would bring in the livestock. So if they had goats or chickens or things like that, they would actually bring the animals inside and put them inside the home. Now, the upper level is where the family would sleep. There would be a, a fire there, like a stove, and the family would gather around the stove to keep warm. And, and it would be everybody, mommy and daddy and every child and everything else, would be gathered together around the stove. Now, all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. I need some bread. He's like, the kids are in bed. Go away. You're going to wake the chickens. Go away. Like, everything's inside the home. This was a huge inconvenience. Huge inconvenience. But here's the thing. Needs are never convenient. Needs are never convenient. If it was convenient, then it wouldn't be a need. If it was convenient, then, then you would have the access and the resources available to meet the need, and so therefore it wouldn't be inconvenient. But the whole definition of a need is the fact that there is lack. And when there is lack, you only realize there is a lack when you need it. You have a bill coming, and you're like, oh, that's okay. Then you check your bank account, and you have negative $7, and you're like, I'm in need. There is lack. There is lack, and, and so I need to find a way to make sufficient what I don't have. And so a need is always an emergency. And the wonderful thing about a need is that necessity drives boldness. What do I mean by that? If this man had what he needed, he wouldn't be knocking at somebody's door at the middle of the night. But because he's in need, now he becomes bold to find a way to meet that need. Necessity drives boldness. Necessity will make you do things you don't normally do. When you have a need, you'll find, you'll seek out ways to make this need uh, uh, no longer a need anymore. You find ways to make sure you have enough. This man had a friend coming and he has a need. But you find it's in the middle of the night. And I just want to get personal with you just for a second. And you don't have to answer. But I'm just curious, even a fair of you, I'm curious. How many of you right now, have a need that's keeping you up at midnight. Something heavy on your heart. Something heavy on your mind. And and you can't get rest. Why? Because the need is an emergency in your life. It might be a need for healing for someone. 
It might be that you're lying in bed next to your husband and you are moments away from divorce. And you can't get rest. This is what a need does. It drives you to a place where sometimes you do bold things like stay up to 2 o'clock in the morning praying on your knees. God, please, I need you. God, please, I don't know how I'm going to make it through without you. Because necessity breeds boldness. It makes you do things that other people will think are crazy. Need drives boldness. You want to you have a boost in your prayer life? Wait till you get a bad report from a doctor. All of a sudden, your prayer life gets boosted fivefold. Because all of a sudden, there's what? A need. Wait, wait till you're at home and you're a mother who has a 17-year-old driving, and all of a sudden you get a phone call from a police officer saying your daughter has been in a wreck. What does that do to your prayer life? Because there's a what? As a need. Needs will drive boldness. Bible, the Bible tells us that we should approach God in boldness. We should approach his throne in boldness. A lot of times we, we approach his throne like little children who are kind of scared and kind of shy. But the moment a need happens, we bust in the doors and say, God, I have a need. Like there's something going on in my life. And if you don't intervene, then everything's going to crumble. So God, if you don't do anything, my world's going to come apart. And all of a sudden this need makes us bold. While we was in Brazil, uh, we were driven around by this man named Pastor Emerson. The pastor, the church I was talking about there, he's the pastor of that church. Spoke very, very little English. Very little. And he drove this 11-passenger Volkswagen van. If you go to my Facebook, you can look at us piled into that thing like a clown car. There's like just people coming out. <laughs> it's like, where are they coming from? But we would drive around the streets of, of Brazil in this little clown car Volkswagen bus. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, traffic in Brazil is, is incredible. I don't know how they do it. They're zigging and zagging and merging and coming in on you. And you're, you're sitting there gripping, gripping the seat in front of you like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh. The whole time, Pastor Emerson's just up there driving. And every now and then, he would, he would do something a little, little edgy. Or he'd hit a bump a little too hard, and everybody in the back would fly up and turn upside down. And, and he would just learn, turn around and look at us and say, safe, cowboy. I have no idea what that means. Like, none. Like, I think he, was, he thought he was saying something else. But every time, he, he's like, safe, cowboy. And we're like, safe, cowboy. You know, we're just, sure. Um, during that time, let me tell you, my prayer life got kicked up a notch. <laughs> my need was, don't let me die in Brazil. Please, please don't let me die in Brazil. But needs will breed boldness in prayer. Secondly, look at the purpose of his request. The purpose of his request. If you look down in verse 5, it says, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. In verse 6, for a friend of mine is in his journey, has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Why is he going to his friend's house? Is it for himself? No, it's for his friend. He's going to his friend's house because his friend has a need. He's seeking out a need for someone else. And this is really the thrust of prayer, I believe, is that we should, our main motivation in our prayer life should not always be for ourselves. It should always be for others and the furthering of God's kingdom. But oftentimes we get so selfish in our prayer life. 
We get, we get so, so consumed with our own needs that we forget that others around us have needs. And we look at this man in this parable, and he's not going to, for a need for himself. He's going for a need for someone else. He's banging on a door on midnight because another person has a need. He came knocking. He came knocking because his friend had a need. The need his friend had was something that he was unable to provide. If he had the bread at home, he wouldn't be at, his, at this guy's house at midnight. He wouldn't be there. But the reality was he couldn't meet the need. So he had to go somewhere else that could. I, I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down. He didn't have the ability to meet the need, so he had to go somewhere else to another place that could meet the need. This is the wonderful thing about prayer is that we have access to a God who has infinite resources. And there's going to be time after time after time in your own life, in your own journey, where you do not have the ability to meet the needs in your life or your family's life, life or your friend's life, but you have access to the one who does. And you can bang on his door any time of the day and say, I have a need. There's a friend that needs you, God. There's a pur- the purpose of his request was for someone else. But I-, I want you to look at something else. Look at how specific he gets. The specific uh, request he makes in chapter five, or verse 5 of chapter 11. How many, breads, I mean, how many loaves of bread does he ask for? Three. 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 Now, for some of you, that might not be a big deal. He asked for three loaves of bread, so what? He was, he was very specific. I tell our teenagers over in TSM this. There's something powerful that happens when you get specific in your prayer requests. There's something, there's something powerful that happens when you begin to voice audibly what you really need. Same thing in repentance. If you come to an altar and you pray and say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Well, what would you do? Well, I'm just a sinner. Well, yeah, we're all sinners. But how about you get a little bit more specific? God, forgive me. Because I've been living a secret life that my family doesn't know about. And I need boldness to tell my family and come clean. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me because I'm a closet closet addict. And I'm addicted to whatever it may be. Fill in the blank. Lord, forgive me because I haven't been the mother that I should be. Lord, forgive me because I haven't... And we start filling in the blanks and we get specific about our request. All of a sudden, something powerful happens when you actually say the words. Now, does God know what's on your heart? Does God know the need? Absolutely, he does. But when you come to God and you get down before him and you say, God, I need you. Because if you don't do anything, then my sister is going to die. She has cancer all in her body, and the doctors have given her no hope. But God, I serve a God that is full of hope. He's a great physician. He can do anything, nothing too big, nothing too hard. God, I'm trusting you to do this very specific thing in my, my sister's life that you would meet her need. Don't just come down and say, Lord, I just pray for my sister. She needs you. No, get specific. What is the need that you have? How can God be real to you in that moment? What, what really do you want? What really do you need? What is your heart's desire? Why don't you get specific about it and tell God exactly what it is? Too many times we are way too generic. We just do a blanket grocery list prayer list. Lord, be with Daddy. Be with Papa. Be with my sister. Uh, be with my boy. Be with my girl. What if we get, started getting specific? 
when we start lame, naming them name by name, but also naming what they need, name, list by, by person, by person, by person. Lastly, the persistence of his request. The persistence of his request. One thing I want you to see here is that it was the relationship to this man that gave him the audience. So this man gets up, this friend who has the visitor, he gets up, goes to another friend's house and knocks on the door at midnight. Now you wouldn't do that to somebody you don't know. Many of us in this room, if you have something you need, you wouldn't get up and go to a neighbor you've never met before and be like, I need some bread. Like, you don't do that. But if you have a best friend that lives close by, you may get up and go knock on their door. Why? Because you have a relationship. You have a relationship. And something I want to tell you right now, everybody in this room, this is very, very important, and you need to hear this. Your relationship matters when it comes to your prayer life. Your relationship to God matters when it comes to your prayer life. Because here is the thing. If your relationship with God is non-existent, or if your relationship with God right now is strained, or, or there's some kind of unconfessed sin in your life, then you may not get the audience that you want. This man had an audience with his friend because he had a relationship with his friend. And he was able to knock on the door at the middle of the night, and he was able to have an audience with his friend because they had a prior relationship. And here's the thing. God would gladly meet you whenever you have that for the very first time. God would gladly meet you for the very first time whenever that midnight need comes. But I want to tell you, he'd rather meet you before the need comes. He'd rather know you before the need ever comes. Your relationship to God and your prayer life is everything. Some of you battle and you struggle because you feel like your prayers aren't being answered. And the reality is, you may have some kind of sin in your life that you aren't dealing with. Fifteen different times in Scripture, I read about how God didn't answer specific prayer requests. Six of those times had to deal with an individual's relationship. Because there was unforgiveness in that individual's heart. Because there was bitterness in that individual's heart. Because there was sin, uh, habitual sin, whatever it may be, that the relationship that the individual had to God determined how God was going to respond. And some of you are struggling in your prayer life because your relationship with God is severed, it is broken, it it is destroyed because of some kind of sin, unforgiveness, or bitterness. You want to get a more dynamic, powerful prayer life? Fix the relationship. Fix the relationship, and your prayer life will take wings. It'll be amazing what happens. So it was the audience, uh, there was, it was the relationship that gave this man the audience he wanted, but it was his persistence that gave him the answer. He kept knocking, and he kept knocking, and he kept knocking. There's a story about this dad who talked about his son, a little boy, I imagine he's probably Carter's age, put him in bed. He finally gets to sit down, and he takes his recliner, and he kicks it back, and he's sitting there for about three minutes. And from his son's bedroom, he hears, I'm thirsty. Parents, we know how that is. You put your kid down, and two minutes later, they're asking for something. He says, Dad, I'm thirsty. He says, you need to get in bed. About a minute goes by. Dad, I'm really thirsty. He says, boy, I told you to go to bed. About another minute goes by. Dad, I I just want some water. He says, boy, if you ask for water one more time, I'm coming in there to spank you. About five minutes goes by. Dad, when you come in here to spank me, can you bring some water? (laughs) 
It was at that moment that his dad realized, my boy must be thirsty. <laughs> he must want some water. Why? Because he was persistent. Here's the thing. Your persistence makes it important. Your persistence makes it important. When, when Christmas time comes, and we all know how this goes, when Christmas time comes, and, and, and you have little kids, they want everything on TV. Every commercial. Every, I want that, Dad. I want that. There was a commercial that came on for like a prescription for bad breath, and Carter's like, I need that. I'm like, you don't even know what that is. That's a bad breath commercial. And so he's like, he wants everything that comes on TV. And then the holy grail of magazines comes out, the Toys R Us catalog. And we set it down, and I gave my little girl a pink pen. I said, baby, I want you to go through. I want you to circle whatever you want. We ain't going to give her something. <laughs> we just want to sound kind of like really like our awesome parents. But I'm like, circle whatever you want, baby. And she goes through, and she circles, and she circles. And she's done pretty quickly. And I give Carter a blue pen. Carter's four years old. I give Carter a blue pen. I said, boy, I want you to go through. I want you to circle everything you want. It was like he was studying for the ACT. He was down there like, mm-mm, yeah, mm-hmm. It was like 45 minutes later, he, he brings me a magazine. He says, I'm done. And I look through the magazine, and I don't know if you're aware, but Toys R Us sells all kinds of stuff, like diapers and strollers and car seats. And he circled all that. He's like, I want some diapers. I want a stroller. I want a car seat. I'm like, you circled everything. There's nothing in there that, that illustrated, like, what he really wanted. So I'm like, you circled everything, so that means nothing's important, right? Because you circled everything. But there was this one toy he kept asking for. There's a show that is called Lion Guard, and it's kind of a spinoff of The Lion King. But Lion Guard, uh, they, they made this toy. It's a treehouse. It's this treehouse. And he kept asking for the Lion Guard treehouse. In fact, I got a picture of the Lion Guard treehouse. Now, that's my boy Carter. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but that, that is the Lion Guard treehouse. That, that is what he kept asking for over and over and over and over. And he kept asking and asking and asking. So guess what that means to me? That he kept asking for it, what? It's important. All the other things he circled just one time and moved on. But this thing he kept asking, well, it's gone now. Uh, he kept asking for it over and over and over. So when the time came that... My wife and I went Christmas shopping. We went Black Friday sale shopping. We found this tree house from Lion Guard, and it was within our budget, so we bought it. And we wrapped it up, and we were so excited to give it to him on Christmas morning. He, he tore into the living room. He opened all these toys, and then he was kind of disappointed because he didn't open the tree house yet. And he didn't know where it was. And so we brought it around, and we showed it to him, and he opened it up, and it was the tree house he wanted, and he was like, yeah! But as my child... I want to give him what he thinks is important. Now, now this truly transfers over into your prayer life. Because there's a lot of things that we pray for once or twice, and it may be important to us in the moment. But then we don't keep asking for it. And so God's just like, well, I guess it wasn't that important. But then there's those moments where we daily, God, please. God, please, we keep bringing up the same person over and over. God, please save this person. God, heal this person. God, deliver this person. And you do it over and over and over and over. Why? Because it's important to you. 
Persistence makes it important. So this man, he has the audience because of his relationship, but he gets the answer he wants because he won't quit knocking. He keeps knocking. And so he's finally like, okay, I'm getting up. I'm getting out of bed. I'm giving you what you want. Leave me alone. But the only reason he got the answer was because he kept knocking, and he wouldn't give up, and he kept knocking, and he kept knocking. This is the reality of our prayer, is that if you give up on knocking, then it may may mean that it wasn't very important to you. I want to give you quickly six reasons real prayer is hard. These aren't going to be up here. Oh, did you get them? Holy smokes. I am impressed. Okay, Uh, six reasons why real prayer is hard. Number one, real prayer requires time and discipline. Real prayer requires time and discipline. It's not something you just do on accident. (laughs) I accidentally prayed today. Like, that doesn't happen. You have to be intentional. You have to do it on purpose. It takes time. Number two, real prayer requires humility. God owes you nothing, by the way. And if you come to him acting like he does owe you something, good luck. Come to him in a humble heart. Acknowledge who he is before you. Hallowed be thy name. You're holy, God. Number three, real prayer requires stillness and quietness. I don't know about you, but I think this is one of the hardest ones of them all. Because we are a culture that's surrounded with noise. There's always something happening. You can be watching TV and on your phone at the same time. And if somebody turns the TV off, you're like, why'd you do that? I was watching that. Like, no, you weren't. You was on your phone. But you like the noise. There's always got to be noise. You go to work, and what's playing in the background? Music. Anytime you're in a car, you're driving, there's something on the radio going because we don't like the quiet. When it gets quiet, it gets weird. It gets awkward. The quiet makes things weird. And so when when you really want to be serious about your prayer life, guess what you're going to have to do? Get quiet and get still. Because what is that saying? It's saying, God, nothing else has my attention but you. Nothing else is stealing my focus. Lord, you have it all. Because the moment you're still and the moment you're quiet, you're saying, God, you're my main priority right now. And nothing can steal that right now. God, it's all about you. This is me and you right now, God. Number four, real prayer requires waiting. Did you realize prayer is a conversation? It's a conversation. How's your conversation with God going? Is it pretty one-sided? I think most of us can say it is. Because we pray and we're serious, and we're, we really mean it. We're praying, and we say amen, and we get up and go fix our coffee and go out about our day. But how many of us actually wait for God to respond? How many of us actually wait in the quiet and the still for God's presence to fill that place and for him to speak to us in a way he's never spoke to us before? Sometimes real prayer requires waiting in the quiet. And it can be uncomfortable, but it needs to happen. Number five, real prayer requires obedience. Okay, you've prayed about something. God has answered you. What are you going to do now? Maybe you've given God two options. God, I have something before me. I can either stay at my job or take the new job. I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? God says, take the new job. You're like, well, they gave me a raise at my old job. (laughs) They kind of promoted me, and I got this bonus package now. Are you sure you want me to take a new job? Okay, God has answered you. Now your next step is to obey him obedience. So when God responds to you in prayer, your responsibility is then to obey whatever he responds. And lastly, real prayer requires persistence. 
We just talked about this. Real real prayer requires persistence because persistence makes it important. You keep on and you keep on and you keep on pushing. Matthew chapter 2. And let me just say this. I became really convicted when I was studying this. Because I realized there's people in my circle of influence, my friends and my family, there's plenty of people in my circle of influence that don't know Jesus. And I got convicted because I began to think, how often do I knock on the door of heaven for them? There's people all around me that I know for a fact if they were to die, they would go to hell. And I'm, I'm, I'm burdened and convicted over the fact that I don't have a burden and conviction for them. How many times are you knocking on the door for someone you love to come to know Jesus? Where is that conviction? Where is that burden? Because I'm telling you the truth. When I studied this, I was like, God just put a finger right on my forehead. He says, boy, you need to look at this. In Matthew chapter 2, there's a story about a man with palsy. His friends are carrying this man to meet Jesus. And it says that Jesus is meeting in this home, and it's so packed that nobody can get to Jesus. And so what do they do? They go to the roof, and they tear open the roof, and they lower this man down at the feet of Jesus. And there's a wonderful wonderful story here. There's a lot of application, but here's one main application you can take away. A real friend will do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And in the reverse side of that is you're not a real friend until you've done everything you could do to get your friend to Jesus. So how often are you knocking on the door of heaven for your friends and for your loved ones, for those lost people around you? And I began to think about this, and I became very, very convicted. Became convicted over the lack of burden, I feel. I became convicted over the lack of persistence I have in my prayer life. I became convicted over how rare it is that their names cross my lips in my prayer life. And I became convicted because if I truly love them, like I say that I love them, then I would not relent until God responds. And so it made me wonder, do I really love them? Do I really, truly love them? In Romans chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, Paul is speaking, and he says something pretty profound. And this, these couple of verses have always kind of haunted me, but he says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, I wish that I could forfeit my own salvation so that all my friends and family could know Jesus. I would give them my salvation. I would go to hell for them. That's pretty intense. That's a love for lost people right there. He says, I would forfeit my salvation so that others could know Jesus. And as I began to think about my own prayer life and how often I pray for the lost and the people around me, I began to to get so convicted because that's not the way I was brought up. Right now, Fairview, Coleman, on stage at this very moment, you are looking at a product of prayer. I am evidence of prayer. Walking tangible evidence of someone praying for me. And let me give you an example. Okay, I'm going to show some pictures, so y'all just bear with me, but this illustrates a big point, and I need these pictures. This first picture is... a. Uh, a 
of me and my grandmother and granddad. My grandmother's here right now. I don't know where we were at. Disney World, maybe. Uh, but anyways, these two people here prayed for me daily. Absolutely without fail, prayed for me. I, I, I know there was a moment I was sitting down on the couch, and my granddaddy was sitting in the recliner next to me, and he looked over at me and says, boy, he said, you had every opportunity to turn out wrong. He says, but you are a product of your grandmother and I's prayers. This is somebody that went to the door of heaven and kept knocking for their grandson. And this next picture is my dad and I. And this, and this is like, he actually helped me in one of my last sermons I ever did at the last church in Panama City. But this is me and my dad. My parents divorced when I was three years old, but every time I went to my dad's house, guess where he, taught, guess where he took me on Sunday mornings? He took me to church. Guess what we did on the three-hour rides back and Because he lived in Panama City, and I lived in Mobile. It was a three-hour ride to get me, and he'd pick me up and take me three hours back home. And he did that every other weekend for 14 years. And in that three-hour trip together, he would teach me scripture. And he'd help me memorize the books of the Bible. And he would teach me lessons about Jesus. This was a man who knocked on the door of heaven for me. Oh, all the time, knock and save my son, deliver my son, use my son, help my son. In this next picture, uh, this guy don't even know I'm talking about him anymore. We don't even stay in communication anymore. This, this guy right here is named Ryan Conklin. Ryan Conklin was the guy at 13 years old that invited me to come to his church. He said, hey, we're having this youth rally at my church tonight. I'd really love for you to come. And I said, okay, I'll come. And it was that night, and at the time of the altar call, after the preacher was done preaching, the altar call was given, and I was gripping that seat so hard in front of me, my knuckles were turning white. And he says, Andrew, do you need to go down front? I said, yes, I do. And so we walked to the front of this church, First Baptist Church of Tillman's Corner in Mobile, Alabama. We walked to the very front of that church, and I met an older man who talked to me about what it meant to be saved, and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ that night. Ryan Conklin knocked on the door of heaven for me, and because of that, I came to his church, and I got saved that night. This right here, this next picture is our youth group that I was a part of in Panama City. Now, I always thought that was kind of a cool picture. I said, it looks like the Holy Spirit's is kind of over us. And then I had some, some man brewing it. He's like, ah, it's just a hair on the lens. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit. But I always looked at this picture, and I thought, man, this is awesome. This youth group was a very small youth group. We had about 30 people in it, maybe. But man, God did some work in me in that youth group. This is just a picture of us being broken one night. And we're praying and we're crying out for others. This isn't a Pentecostal church, by the way. We're not slayed in the spirit right now. This is an independent Baptist church. But these are, this is a picture of broken teenagers for God. And in this next picture is a picture of me and my now wife. This was a picture before I discovered donuts and chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know which one's happier, him or me, but uh, Tracy, when me and Tracy were dating, she told me, she says, Andrew, I, I just want to let you know I feel called to be a pastor's wife. I said, well, we should break up <laughs> because I'm not going into the ministry, and uh, I said, you're wasting my time, and I'm wasting your time. I was trying to be very just kind of matter of fact. She said, we're wasting each other's time if, if that's the truth. And so uh, she prayed for me, continually prayed for me. 
And so this next picture is a picture of world changers in 2004. This is where, on a Wednesday night, I'm the, I'm the skinny guy still on top of the ladder with a CK shirt on. This was the Wednesday night camp, the camp, I was, I'm sorry, we was at this camp, and on Wednesday night, God spoke to me. He says, Andrew, look around. And so I began to look around this auditorium filled with all these teenagers worshiping God. And, and God just spoke into me. He says, Andrew, you're going to be a youth pastor. I mean, clear as day. So my wife, or girlfriend at the time, who said she's going to be a pastor's wife, and I said, no way. Well, she kept knocking on the door, and guess what God did? He put a call in my life to go into ministry. Amen. And now me and Tracy have been married almost 11 years. So, so God has a way of working things out because of people's prayers. This last picture is a picture of two of the, some of the most influential people in my life. This is my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. Some of you don't like your mother-in-laws and father-in-laws. I adore mine. I love mine to pieces. They're great people. Matter of fact, my father-in-law was my youth pastor, so I dated the youth pastor's daughter, and then I married her. But that was, my, that was my youth pastor, who's now my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. Some of the most godly people I've ever met. And, and both of them have a prayer life I'm so envious of. I, we've stayed with them for a few months before in between churches. And I remember getting up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom or go get something to drink. And my father-in-law would be on the living room, on, on a footstool in the living room, crying and praying at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning praying for others and I just watched his prayer life and I see how God answered his prayers and how many times he would knock on the door for me and I was like <laughs> I couldn't deny that God is real I want to show you three more pictures these are all pictures of people and there's plenty more pictures of people who's interceded for me I'm sure but these are the ones I could find but these other pictures this is a picture of Blake Bush Blake has no idea I'm talking about him but in our youth group, our, our youth pastor said, let's pick one person to pray for. One person. Our whole youth group will get together and pray for this one person. And this girl in our youth group, her name was Chelsea. Chelsea says, I really want my brother to be saved. And he said, what's his name? He says, Blake. He's a couple years older than me. And we said, okay, let's pray for Blake. And so for weeks, we prayed for Blake. And we kept praying for Blake. And we kept praying for Blake. And then, and then we had a youth rally. It was a three-day youth rally. And we prayed, God, send Blake to the youth rally. Bring him to the youth rally, God. Bring him. Day one came, no Blake. Day two came, no Blake. Day three came, there's still no Blake. And then about 30 minutes into the service, the back doors cracked open and in walked Blake. And at the end of the service, he came forward. He received Christ as his Savior. And I said, I've been knocking on the door for you. <laughs> I've been praying for you. And this next picture is my Paul. That's pretty much how you'd find him anytime. <laughs> Just, he had a separate room in the house. He's like, I don't want to sleep with her, you know, like my Grammy. She's like, he, she has her own room, I have my own room. I and mean, that's just how you'd find him most of the time. But he was, he was one of my buddies, my best friend. He took me squirrel hunting. He took me golfing, bowling. He was just, he was just my buddy, fishing. I called him on a Friday, and he'd always answer the phone this way. Hey, buddy, what you doing? That's how he talked. Hey, buddy, how you doing? He says, you want me to come pick you up? I said, yes, sir, come pick me up. And I'd spend the whole weekend with him. He was lost. He didn't know Jesus. He was a good man, but he didn't know Jesus. And I prayed for him for years and years and years. I have a journal where every entry in my journal, I wrote down my Paul's name. For years I did that. Pray, I'm praying for my Paul's salvation. I'm praying for my Paul's salvation. And then he got diagnosed with cancer. 
And all of a sudden, now it became an emergency. Remember we talked about there's a need and becomes an emergency? Now it became an emergency. He don't have much time left, God. If you don't do something, he's going to die without you. And I prayed and I prayed and prayed. And, and, and then there came a time where I could share the gospel with him. I shared the gospel with him, but he didn't respond. He didn't receive Jesus. But then I heard that there was a person, their neighbor, their neighbor went to church and was sharing that her neighbor, my Paul, was dying of cancer. And, and, and her Sunday school teacher became very burdened about this and went and visited my Paul one day and knocked on the door. And says, Mr. Mashburn, my name is so-and-so. You don't know me, but I'm your neighbor's Sunday school teacher, and she's been praying for you. Do you have a moment I can just talk with you? And so he invited him into the house, and they began to talk. And in that encounter, my papa gave his life to Jesus. But I knocked on the door for years. So, so you may be knocking on the door for somebody, and you may be thinking, this is, this is pointless, but don't give up. Keep knocking. Keep knocking. And this last picture is my Uncle David. All right. He's a mean as a snake. I'm telling you right now, he yanked at your car just because he didn't like the way he looked. He was mean redneck. Gosh, he was just a mean Had the mullet since the day he was born. I mean, just absolutely. And he got diagnosed with cancer. And he was dying. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And I got the phone call one day. My mom says, your uncle has went into a coma. And I was angry at God, so angry at God. I said, God, I've been praying for him to get saved, and now he's in a coma. I don't even have an opportunity to tell him about you. I said, God, just give me one more chance. Wake him up. Let me just get to the hospital. Let me see him just awake, and let me talk to him about Jesus one more time, God, please. And I drove from Panama City to Mobile, and I walked in that hospital room full of hope that maybe he would be awake, and he's not. He's, he's out. And about 10, 10 minutes later, he dies. And I was so angry at God. I said, God, I've been praying for this and praying for this and praying for this, and you just take them. And, and I, was, I was very hurt about that. And then at his funeral service, the man given the whole service talked about how he had the opportunity to talk to my uncle before he died, and my uncle prayed to receive Jesus. And I was like, okay, okay, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You were doing something bigger. I didn't see it behind the scenes. What am I trying to tell you? Keep knocking. Keep knocking. Because when it's important, you keep knocking. Persistence makes it important. See, Jesus gives us this parable, and really what he's trying to tell us is this. If, if an annoying neighbor can go to his friend's house and wake him up in the middle of the night to get what he wants, then how much more access do you have to a loving God who wants to benefit all of his children? He said, if you can get an annoying a neighbor to give you what, what you want in the middle of the night, how much more do you have access to God who loves you, and who wants to give you what you want? Church, I, I just want to challenge you with this. I know everybody in this room has somebody they're burdened for. Everybody in this room. So I'm going to do this. This is how we're going to close out. Would you stand with me? Would you close your eyes and bow your head? Everyone take a moment right now. At the end of this service, this is what I want you to do. Now, some of you in this room may not know Jesus as your personal Savior, and this is what I want to challenge you. Before you leave here today, I want you to have a conversation with somebody about how to be saved. And we have people all up front down here, and we have people up front in the balcony.